morning. Um, my name is Rick. I'm on staff here at Grace Church. If I've not met you, um, do come and grab me after the meeting. I'd love to get to know you. And uh, if this is your first time, what can I say? This is a really exciting day because my beloved Brighton and Hove Albion are playing Millwall this afternoon in the FA Cup quarterfinal. And I really feel like we've got a decent chance of getting to the semi-final for literally the first time in my life. So I am buzzing about that. I'm also, <laughs> also excited about the Bible. <laughs> Maybe a relief for me standing here. Um, we're going to be going back to our series in Exodus. And this really is a big one. This really is exciting because today is the Exodus. The moment that the book is named after when God draws his people out of Egypt, but not before he teaches them something of what he's going to be drawing them into. Um, you'll find Exodus at the beginning of the Bible. It's, it's about there, um, and it's about 1,500 years uh, before Jesus was born. Um, we pick up the story where the Israelites, that's God's people, are, are in Egypt, a foreign land where they've been oppressed, they've been put into slavery. God has sent Moses, an Israelite man, to go to Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, to say, let God's people leave. Pharaoh refuses. And then we see an escalating series of increasingly miraculous and devastating plagues, or signs, through which God demonstrates to Pharaoh his power again and again. But Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses to let the Israelites go. And today, today, we come to the tenth and final plague. Moses goes to see Pharaoh one last time and announces that unless God's people are released from their slavery, the firstborn member of every Egyptian family will die. Every eldest son, daughter, or livestock, God will put to death. Pharaoh continues to refuse. And so we pick up our story today when God comes to speak with Moses about what to do next. I'm going to be reading from um, Exodus chapter 12. Um, the words will be on the screen, but can I encourage you, I'm going to be jumping about a little bit and referencing other bits in this passage. Um, so if you do have a Bible with you, just have it open with you. That'll really help. So chapter 12, first one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make the count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts in the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. 
In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in, in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And I'm going to skip down now to um, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there wasn't a house where someone wasn't dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go. Serve the Lord as you said. Take your flocks and your herds as you said and be gone and bless me also. One of the reasons we preach the way we do at Grace Church, i.e. We, we, we take a book from the Bible and we walk through it chapter by chapter, is that it compels us to address some of the bits that are maybe harder to swallow. And today is no exception. So before we go any further, we've got to ask the question, how do we reconcile what we know about our God of love with the God who orchestrates the death of the firstborn? Well, whenever we read the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, we should really attempt to read it with the eyes of the culture in which it was written. And you have to say, three and a half thousand years ago, life was cheaper it's worth remembering why the Israelites are in Egypt to begin with. They had come from their own country into Egypt because there was a famine in their own country. There was a shortage of food. And while this isn't as shocking, this is just as difficult for us to understand. For me, the closest I get to a shortage of food is when I go to Aldi, and they've run out of mushrooms, I gently tut, and I go to Sainsbury's to go and get my mushrooms instead. Can't go without mushrooms. For us, food is plentiful. So life is precious. We have things like family planning. So we have fewer children, but we expect them all to live. Actually, the opposite was true in the ancient world. Many more people were born, and many people died more frequently than now, whether by starvation, lack of modern medicine, and many ungodly cultures human sacrifice, which rightly all is unthinkable now. So we read this, we, we need to temper our shock, but only slightly, because this is still big stuff. So as well as a cultural reading, we need a contextual reading, one that sees this story not only on its own, but as part of the wider story. And actually, this story shows us that God is actually a God of justice. Which is good, 
Because we crave justice, all of us. You know, it starts when we're children. When, when, when you want someone to get punished, your brother, because he's done something naughty, yeah? How many are parents? Yeah, and you, your kids always dob each other in, don't they? I remember one time, one of us, I don't know which one it was now, but um, we, one of us squirted paint at the TV. I remember it because it was there for years. It was glittery. And, uh, and I don't know who did it, but I blamed him. He blamed me. We blamed the other one because he wasn't in the room. And then my parents come down. They have no idea who to, to punish. So what do they do? They punish all of you. Ah, the injustice. And this continues into our adulthood. You know, someone gets promoted ahead of you. They haven't got the qualifications you've got. They haven't got the experience you've got. You want to march into your boss's office and ask them why. I was listening to um, 606 on Five Live last week. Jack Grealish, the Aston Villa captain, got assaulted by a Birmingham fan. And so it's full of angry brummies going, we need to lock him up for life. You know, he can never come to another football match. We want justice. <laughs> Sorry, Austin. And when we think about the real evils of this world, sexual assault, child abuse, the horrors of what's going on in New Zealand at the moment, our hearts cry for justice. And we get that from God, because he made us in his image. So in this context, we must remember that at the beginning of the story, Pharaoh had commanded every baby boy born to Israel to be drowned, to be thrown into the river. This is an outrage. This is evil. And God will not stand idly by. The death of the Egyptian firstborn is God meeting out justice, which only he can do, because only he is righteous. But even in this righteous act of vengeance, God has shown himself to be slow to anger. He's given Pharaoh fair warning, nine signs worth. By the eighth sign, actually, we read that the Egyptians, Pharaoh's own people are coming up to him saying, let them go. What are you doing? Let them go. Egypt is ruined. Clearly, this God is powerful. Our food, our flocks, our health, let them go. And yet he refuses. So God has to act. And even when it comes to it, God doesn't act like Pharaoh. Pharaoh persecutes babies. Yeah? God selects the firstborn, which included adults as well, would have included me. Pharaoh aims for half the population. All the males, every other person. This is not God's way. As we've seen, many children were born to parents. Only one is the firstborn. And God doesn't seek Pharaoh's act of violence in drowning either. They go in their sleep. And this, this story should bring us to a right fear of our awesome God. And it, it does him a disservice to just think of him as a, a loving, easy to get on with. He, he is. He gives himself to us, but he's also God. 
you know? But it should also bring us hope that God's heart beats as ours does against injustice, against abuse, against neglect. And as, as we reflect on this passage this afternoon and in the week, we can also know that God will deal rightly with evil. So this is good news. But if God is just, what about when I'm in the wrong? You know? What about when I've committed the offense? In just a few chapters, the Israelites are going to be given God's Ten Commandments, a revelation, a gift that helps them know how holy he is and what he expects of their lives as his people. And these stand today, which means that every time I lie, every time I badmouth my parents, Every time I'm jealous of someone's job, house, car, family, I deserve the punishment of the firstborn. Which ultimately is death, as the story shows. But beyond that, our punishment is separation from God. And when we don't know God, that's why we fear death. And all that's left is insecurity. That's why we feel like we have to fight for everything. Recognition, money, relationship, power, sex. It's all a fight. Our lives without God are a battle. Our lives without God are unfulfilled. Our greatest punishment is that God leaves us to ourselves. But he has not left us to ourselves. Because God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. For God gave up his own firstborn in our place. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the Son of God and God himself, when he died on the cross, he took on himself every sin, every wrong action that you or I have ever made, and he took the punishment for them. The cross is the only place where justice and mercy meet. As Jesus took the nails through his hands, through his feet, as thorns dug into his brow, as he suffered the anguish of separation from his heavenly Father that we deserved, so we receive the love of the Father. Jesus substitutes himself for us. And it's a full substitution. Because when he takes our sin, he takes our punishment, he takes our guilt, our shame, we receive his standing before God. Which means we receive relationship with the Father. We receive his relationship, his security, his freedom, his joy, his peace. We are sons. We no longer have to fight for recognition because God sees us. We no longer have to fight for relationship because he's with us. We no longer have to fight for reward because he gives everything to us. It is just that God punished sin. It is mercy that Jesus takes that punishment. Justice and mercy meet at the cross. In the words of the great hymn by Isaac Watts, see from his head, his hands 
his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Thank you, Jesus. So that's a good introduction. Don't worry, I know I'm halfway through. <laughs> Let's look back at the passage, and I'll keep it a bit lighter. Chapter 12 actually comes as a bit of a shock, okay? Um, you exodus up to this point, it's been nice, narrative, story-driven. You, you've got Pharaoh and Moses and the people of Israel. You've got this grandstand moment in chapter 11, the 10th place coming, the killing of the firstborn, and then chapter 12 hits us like a ton of bricks, like something from Leviticus or another book of the law, you know? And this is why I skipped down, because I didn't want to read all about the unleavened bread laws. Come on. And it's not a mistake, you know, it's not suddenly poor storytelling. It's not like the fifth Harry Potter book, you know. <laughs> you know, J.K. Rowling's got this great story going on, and then all of a sudden we get bogged down in house elf rights. Who cares? Come on. <laughs> no. <laughs> Moses is a better writer than Rowling as well, I want to say that. Um, no, see, God puts it here to give the Passover the centrality it is to have in the lives of the Israelites and also our lives. God draws us out to draw us in. It's what we call the series. But before he's even drawn the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, he draws them into a ritual of relationship that's going to go on forever. See, God knows us. Yeah, He made us. And so he knows that we respond to stuff like taste and smell. And so much of what God is instituting in the Passover is, is sense memory. You know, how, how you smell something and suddenly you're, you're back, you're transported. I think I said this when I preached at Christmas, but I'm not a big fan of turkey. Yeah? I am a big fan of pigs in blankets. Sausages wrapped in bacon. Who thought of that? What a genius. Someone who clearly understands the new covenant. And, <laughs> I, and I love them. You can tell I'm a man who loves sausages. <laughs> But I also love them because they remind me of Christmas. You know, the taste, of the, oh, the crunch of the bacon and the flesh. And the, oh, come on. Suddenly, I'm back. I'm back. And I remember presents and family and flicking through the Radio Times trying to decide what film to watch. Yeah? In the same way, God gives the Israelites the Passover feast in order that the smells, the tastes, the textures remind them of their salvation. Reminds them that they are God's people, that blood was spilled for their liberation. Just as once a year we commemorate the coming of Christ with carols and cards, so annually they feast on freedom from Pharaoh. And like Christmas too, Passover is meant to be a festival. Whole families are instructed to eat the lamb together. And if your family's not big enough, go and get another family and share it together. I'll tell you what, I read, I read this. I didn't really understand it because I'm from a family of three boys. And, the, you know, there's no way we couldn't eat just one lamb between us. <laughs> Come on. But this sense of community is actually represented in the Lamb itself. As well as being blemish, free, spotless, perfect, like God's holiness. We're also told in uh, verse 46 that I didn't read, that you're not even supposed to break any of its bones to represent the unbroken nature of the community of faith. They dress the lamb with bitter herbs to symbolize the bitter treatment 
that they've known in Egypt. To reflect the speed at which they have to leave Egypt, they roast the lamb because it's the quickest way to cook it. You know, God says, don't even bother separating it from the offal, the head and the guts. This is actually why they, they have to um, wear their, you know, carry more and Euro hike ready to go because they're, 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 they've got to go. They've, got, they've not they've got any time. The bread is unleavened, which means it's got no yeast in it. It's not got time to raise. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the Bake Off where they make bread. I also wrote that, by the way, and realized that's a stupid thing to say. I'm aware that people make bread outside of the Bake Off tent, but as I don't see it, we're going to go with that. You know, they, they make it, they knock it back, they, they fold it, fold it, knead it. I'm not very good at making bread. But then they pop it in a bowl, a glass bowl, so you can see it, and then they put a, uh, a cling film over the top, and they leave it to prove, to rise. We leave it for five minutes. We have a cup of tea because it's on Channel 4 now. And then they... They have to leave it for hours to rise. The Israelites don't have that kind of time. They're going to be on the road in, 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 in a matter of hours. I've tried unleavened bread. It's not that exciting. It's like a poor man's Jacob's cracker. But generation after generation of Israelite ate it. And as the cracker snapped in their mouth, subconsciously their minds were cast back to God. And thinking about how he saved them. How he drew them out of 80 years of slavery in a moment. The big difference though between this meal and some arbitrary seasonal food like pigs in blankets is that the lamb wasn't just the memento but the means of the Passover. Because before any of the feasting starts the blood of the lamb must be collected, we see in verse 22, in a bowl, a basin. And the Israelites are instructed to dip a hyssop branch into the bowl. Hyssop's a herb. I looked up you know, what it is, and its most likely modern equivalent is marjoram, which helped me not at all. <laughs> I've seen marjoram. It sits in the back of my cupboard, but I don't know what to do with it. But suffice to say, it's a herb, and it's got a stalk. And so they dip the hyssop into the bowl and they go outside and they paint their doorposts with the blood. If you know this story, and you may well do, it's a Sunday school classic, I wonder if you've ever given thought as to why they have to do that. You know? I think in the, the Sunday school version that's in my head at least, it's because God needs a map. Yeah? It's, it's like God's going to turn up at midnight and he's going to go, right, okay, I've got to go to all the houses. That one's got blood over, so I'll pass over that one. And actually, that is exactly what happens. And that's why it's called the Passover. But he's also God. You know, he's also all knowing. He doesn't need Google Maps Street View to work out who lives where. This is the same God who six plagues previous sent swarms of flies on Egypt and then, this is bonkers stuff, isn't it? The flies, when they come to Goshen where the Israelites live, they don't go any further. Like they're meeting some spiritual force field. That's so they go back into Egypt. God clearly doesn't need to know who to pass over and who not to. So why do they have to do it? Well, God says in, in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you. Not for me, for you. Here's the truth. 
Every single person in the eternal community of faith from Abraham in Genesis through you and me today to the last person who gives their life to Jesus before the world ends gets the love and acceptance of the Father through one means, the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in him. Amen? Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It takes faith, and that is all. But an active faith that confesses, that repents, that turns away from sin and says, I'm sorry about that stuff. An active faith that says out loud, I believe in Jesus. That's what happened last week at the baptisms. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died. I believe he rose again. And by that, I'm saved, forgiven, and adopted by God. In the same way, these Israelites didn't know about Jesus. Sure. But they knew they had to put their trust in God. They too needed an active faith. An active faith that went outside and painted their doorposts with a hyssop branch. A faith that says, I believe God is coming tonight in his divine judgment. And I'm believing for his mercy that when he sees the blood, he will pass over my house. You see, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And when the Israelites put their trust in the blood on the doorposts, they really put their blood, their trust in the blood of Jesus, though they knew it not. The time had not yet come for Jesus to be shown to the world, but God was still desirous of a relationship with his people. So God, looking forward in time to the cross, accepted their faith and gave them a lamb as a sign of who Jesus would be and what he would do. The lamb points to the cross. Jesus is the final Passover lamb. Which is why we don't eat it anymore. Because we have Jesus. He is the spotless one. The blemish-free sacrifice. The only man who ever lived that did not sin and yet was slain on the cross. When did he die? On the very day of Passover. And just as the Passover lamb is killed at twilight, so darkness filled the sky when Jesus breathed his last. Just as the lamb is served with bitter herbs, so Jesus drinks the bitter cup of the separation from his father. Just as the lamb was to be eaten in community, so Jesus died for a people, his church. Just as the blood of the lamb was lifted up on the doorposts on a hyssop branch, in John 19, a hyssop branch is used to lift sour wine to Jesus' dying lips. When Jesus had received the wine, we read, he said, it is is finished. If you read on in that chapter, it also says that because Jesus had already died, there was no need to break his legs. Just like the preparation of the Passover lamb. In Douglas Stewart's commentary on Exodus, he says there's no reason, absolutely none, culinary or ritualistic, to leave a lamb's legs unbroken. 
God's sole purpose 1,500 years before was to point to Jesus. The sign of the Passover is fulfilled by Jesus. But the Passover goes on. We're going to finish shortly, but we've got to look at Jesus and his disciples in Matthew 26. The night before he was crucified, knowing that he, in mere hours, was to replace the Passover lamb for good, he reconstituted the ritual meal. No lamb, just bread and wine. Read from 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup when he'd given thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He will drink with us again. The Passover is not finished. It goes on forever. God has initiated a ritual of relationship that he intends to share with us eternally. In Luke's account, we're told to do this in remembrance of Jesus, which we're going to do. But this is not just a ritual of mere remembrance. This is a ritual of live relationship. When you take the bread and drink the cup, Jesus will be here by his spirit. He will pour out his grace upon you. And it's meant to create sense memories for us too. Like your Christmases. You know, many years you've you've built up a portfolio of memories and that's how you think about your family. In the same way, each time you meet with Jesus when you take communion, your relationship with him will deepen. As you smell the same bread, as you hold the same cup, echoes of previous revelation and reverence should come rushing back. God draws us out to draw us in. The story of our passage today is that actually joined by many Egyptians, awed by the true God and his power, God drew his people out of Egypt and drew drew them into a ritual of relationship. Whether they were ethnic Jews or not. Three and a half thousand years ago, God gave the people a ritual meal of Passover to serve as an annual reminder. Two thousand years ago, God himself came to eat the meal with his people in bodily relationship. Today, if we believe in Jesus, regardless of our ethnicity, our background, by his spirit, we share that meal with him. And for eternity, Christ and his international church will take the Passover together. We eat with our friends, don't we? So we will forever. Forever.